0: Tonight on True Crime Island Special Edition, we look at the Elisa Curry case and we go back in time to see what was going on all those years ago in October 1967 and 1977. You'll hear about Bigfoot, UK underworld gangs, and airline hijacking. Hi. I'm your host, Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, Special Edition. Okay, first up before we go back in time is an update on the disappearance of Elisa Curry. As you may or may not know, 43-year-old Elisa was discovered missing from her holiday home along Victoria's Great Ocean Road at Aries Inlet after her husband arrived home from attending the AFL Grand Final. The game was on Saturday, the 30th of September, and her husband and two children came back to the holiday house on the Sunday morning. Now, I'll just go over some of the timeline of the events. Friday night, September 29, Elisa shuts down her Facebook account. Now, this is pretty weird. Saturday at 2.30pm, Elisa's watching the AFL Grand Final with a friend who leaves sometime after the game's over. Saturday after 5.30pm, Elisa messages her husband, who was at the AFL Grand Final with their children, about the result of the game. Two neighbours, a husband and wife, visit Elisa on Saturday night. The couple leaves, but the wife returns later. Now, at Saturday 10 p.m., the female neighbor that returned to Elisa's place, she discussed a personal matter with her. The neighbor leaves after seeing Elisa get into bed. Now, this is strange. The next door sees her go to bed, okay? Now, Saturday 10.30 p.m., Elisa's phone is switched off. This is the last time her phone pings any mobile tower. Sunday, 9am. David Curry and the couple's kids return to the holiday house to find Elisa missing. David Curry then calls police and a search is underway. By Tuesday, 2pm, with Elisa nowhere in sight, David Curry pleads for information for his missing wife. He says, Elisa, if you're out there, can you please contact us? So that's where I basically left it at the last special edition. Well, on Wednesday, the 11th of October, a woman walking her dog along the beach at Point Road Night near Angel Sea at about 11.30 a.m., discovered remains washed up on the beach. Now if you look on the map, Point Roadnight is about eight kilometers or five miles further along the coast in a northeasterly direction from Aries Inlet. Police sealed off the scene and recovered the remains. Now a witness did say that the remains were of a female, but the police stated that it would be several days before they could identify the remains. Eventually, on Monday the 16th of October, investigators confirmed that the remains were of Elisa Curry, and at this stage, they were not treating her death as suspicious, but investigations were ongoing. Now, I don't want to speculate too much But if we try to theorise on how she ended up in the surf, I guess there are a few possibilities. She either went out for a late night swim and got into difficulties, but there's no evidence that she'd ever done this before. She was more of a runner than a swimmer, and especially late at night or early morning. I mean, she may have slipped and fallen into the water, as there are cliffs and walking tracks where she may have been running. Also, maybe someone abducted her and they threw her in the water, or, or or threw a body in the water. She also may have deliberately gone into the water, knowing she would be swept out to sea. The mysterious part of this is the fact that her Facebook was closed down on the Friday night. Her phone was switched off on the Saturday night. She called her neighbour back to the house late Saturday night about a personal issue and then she goes missing sometime after that. I guess we will have to wait for the coroner's, coroner's report to shed some light on what really happened. I will of course update you when further information comes in. Now, if you need to t- someone to talk to, there are these organisations in Australia, and I'm sure there are similar organisations in the country you're listening from. Anyway, in Australia, you can contact Lifeline. That's 131114 or lifeline.org.au. There's a suicide callback service on 1300 659 Four six seven, or suicidecallbackservice.org.au, and Beyond Blue one three hundred two two four six three six, or Beyond Okay, now to something that I've wanted to do for a while. Let's go back in time to what happened in October many years ago. I'll start with October 1967, 50 years ago. I think we all know of the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film. Well, that was the film that was filmed 50 years ago at Bluff C- Creek in Northern California. It's that shaky footage of Bigfoot walking along, and he turns to look at the camera. So, do you think it's real? Now. Of course, there are people who are going to analyse every one of the 954 frames of the film. The money shot frame is frame 352, which is in the public domain and not actually owned by anyone. But I'm not going to go into who owns what, but yeah, that frame is in the public domain. The camera they use to film the sequence, and again, without going into too much technical detail, had a continuously variable speed dial on it with markings for 16, 24, 32, 48, and 64 frames per second. Thing is, this had no click stops, so it it could film at any speed between 16 and 64 frames per second. Now, Patterson says, He normally films at 24 frames per second, but he had no time to check this when he spotted the Bigfoot and started filming. He says that after filming that he saw the dial on 18 frames per second. Now, some people may say that's a typo. It it was 16 frames per second. Anyway, now if you speed the film up to 24 frames per second, the creature walks just like a human in a gorilla suit. Anyway, by slowing it down to 16 frames per second, so if it was filmed at 24 and slowed down to 16 frames per second, it it doesn't walk like a human would. So this is where part of the controversy on whether or not it is a hoax. So... I picked out one favourable and one unfavourable analysis of the film from Wikipedia. So here we go. Now let's look at the favourable. Grover Krantz. Anthropologist Grover Krantz was originally sceptical of the Patterson film based on the still photos in Argosy magazine. But he changed his mind in 1969 after seeing the film, because the realism of the creature's locomotion impressed him. He later offered an in-depth examination of the Patterson film. He concluded that the film depicts a genuine unknown creature. Primarily, Kranz's argument is based on a detailed analysis of the figure's stride, center of gravity and biomechanics. Krantz argues that the creature's leg and foot motions are quite different from a human's and could not have been duplicated by a person wearing a gorilla suit. Krantz and others have noted natural-looking musculature visible as the creature moved, arguing this would be highly difficult or impossible to fake. Another couple, Hunter and Dahinden, also note that the bottom of the figure's head seems to become part of the heavy back and shoulder muscles. And the muscles of the butt were distinct. Okay, so Krantz reckons it's too hard to fake the motion and the structure while his mates, Hunter and Dahinden, checked out the creature's butt and reckoned it was no human butt. It was real Bigfoot booty. Okay, as with all scientists, they won't always agree. So let's have a look at one, actually a few relevant comments from several people that are unfavourable to it being a real Bigfoot. Bernard Huvelmans. A zoologist and the so-called father of cryptozoology thought the creature in the Patterson film was a suited human. He objected to the film's subject's hair flow pattern as being too uniform, to the hair on the breasts as not being like a primate, and to its buttocks as being insufficiently separated and to its too-calm retreat from the pursuing men. Anatomist D.W. grieve of the Royal Free Hospital School of Medicine, he studied a copy of the film in 1971. grieve concluded that the possibility of fakery is ruled out if the speed of the film was 16 or 18 frames per second. In these conditions... A normal human being could not duplicate the observed pattern, which would suggest that the Sasquatch must possess a very different locomotor system to that of a man. If filmed at a higher speed, Greve concluded that the creature walked with a gait pattern very similar in most respects to a man walking at high speed. Esteban Sarmiento is a specialist in physical anthropology at the American Museum of Natural History. He says the gluteals, although large, fail to show a human-like cleft or crack. (laughs) Could it all just come down to no butt crack in the suit? So what do you reckon, islanders? Real or fake, get on the Facebook and let us all know. Now, the next event happened in October 1967 is one for our UK listeners, and they may know a lot about this. It's about London criminal Jack McVitie. He's murdered by the Cray twins, leading to their eventual imprisonment and downfall. Ronnie Cray and Reggie Cray were the foremost perpetrators of organised crime in the East End of London during the 1950s and 60s. With their gang The Firm, the craze were involved in armed robberies, arson, protection rackets, assaults and the murders of Jack the Hat McVitie and George Cornell. The craze, they were nightclub owners and eventually became celebrities and part of the London Swinging Sixties. A large part of their fame was due to their non-criminal activities as popular figures on the celebrity circuit, socialising with lords, MPs, socialites and show business characters, including actors George Raft, Julie Garden, Diana Dawes, Barbara Windsor and singer Frank Sinatra. Ronnie Cray, in his biography, said, They were the best years of our lives. They called in the swinging 60s. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones were rulers of pop music. Carnaby Street ruled the fashion world. And me and my brother ruled London. We were fucking untouchable. So, here we have a couple of crims that are investing their ill-gotten gains into more legal enterprises while at the same time taking control of the criminal underworld in London. So these guys to the general public are high-rolling nightclub-owning celebrities. In reality, a lot of people knew they were dodgy. I may have to do a full episode on these guys at some stage, but let's get into their downfall. So there was Jack the Hat McVitie, He was a notorious English criminal from London of the 1950s and 60s. He was an enforcer and hitman of the Cray Twins gang called The Firm. He was commissioned by Ronnie Cray to murder ex-friend and business partner Leslie Payne amid fears that Payne was going to grass on him about his criminal activities. Ronnie Crade paid Jack the Hat five hundred pounds up front to do the job with another five hundred pounds on completion. Jack the hat <laughs> Jack the Hat Jack the Hat set off to Payne's house and knocked on the door which was answered by Payne's wife. She told Jack that her husband was not in, and so Jack said Oh that's alright and left. That seems like something a Canadian gangster would do. Just go away. Oh, that's okay. Anyway, Jack left, and rather than give Ronnie Cray back the money, he kept it. Now, this really pissed off Ronnie. Not only he wanted Leslie Payne dead, but the guy got to do it, fucked it all up, and kept the money. So, now this turns out to be a bit of a black comedy of errors. On the 29th of October 1967, Jack the Hat was lured to a basement flat in Stoke, Newington on the pre- pretense of a party. As he entered the room, he saw Ronnie Cray approach him, letting loose with a cambo-like rage, and then Ronnie cut him below his eye with some broken glass. Then a full-on blue started with Reggie Cray pulling a gun on Jack the Hat. He pulled the trigger twice, but the gun didn't go off. Then Ronnie Hart, the Cray twins' cousin, held Jack the hat in a bear hug while Reggie Cray, using a carving knife, stabbed Jack in the face, stomach, and then then he twisted it into his neck as he lay dying on the floor. Tony and Chris Lambriano, and Ronnie Bender helped clean up the blood and tried to get rid of the body. So let's go to fuck up number one. Jack the Hat's body was too big to fit in the boot or trunk of the car, so they wrapped his body in an eider-down. Okay, that is a doona for the Aussies, and I don't know, a quilt for the other countries. Anyway, they put him in an eider-down, put him in the back seat of the car, and that was driven by Tony Lambriano. Chris Lambriano and Bender, they followed behind in another car. Let's get the fuck up number two. Chris lost Tony's car and spent about 15 minutes looking around for him. They eventually found Tony outside St. Mary's Church where he had run out of fuel. So he'd run out of fuel. I mean, if you're going to do this thing, make sure there's petrol in the car. Anyway, Jack Hat's body's still inside the car. So that's fuck-up number three. Now, you get these three clowns. They decide to leave the body in the backseat of the car and go home. Bender then called the Cray Twins' brother, Charlie Cray, informing him that had all been dealt with. But then when the Cray twins find out where they'd left Jack the Hat's body, they were pissed off. And with dawn breaking, they called an associate, Freddie Foreman, to see if he could get rid of the body properly. Sort of like a Winston the Wolf from, from Pulp Fiction. Anyway, Foreman found the car broke into it and drove the body to New Haven where with the help of a trawlerman, the body was bound with chicken wire and dumped in the English Channel. In the end they would never find Jack the Hat's body but the Cray twins would eventually go down for his murder. They would end up in prison for the rest of their useful lives and both are now long dead. I don't know about this organised crime thing. I guess even if you make enough money to retire or go legit, you can never really leave the business. Maybe it's the power as, as well as the money or that you just know too much to simply walk away from it. So I guess there is a lesson in all of this. If you're going to do something criminal and you need accomplices, choose them carefully don't sign up dickheads okay so that was 50 years ago nothing's really changed has it anyway let's go to 40 years ago in october 1977 on the 13th of october 1977 lufthansa flight 181 a boeing 737 was hijacked by four members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. So at 11am Thursday, the 13th of October, Lufthansa Flight 181 took off from Palma de Mallorca, which is a little Spanish island in the western Mediterranean Sea. It was en route to Frankfurt, and I think you all know where Frankfurt is. It had eighty-six passengers and five crew on board. About thirty minutes, minutes into the flight, a Palestinian named Zohair Yusuf Akach, he was twenty-three and male, who adopted the alias as Captain Marta Mahmud, and I will call him Mahmud f- further on. He burst into the cockpit with a loaded pistol and ordered the co-pilot. Jürgen Vito to go sit with the passengers. He then demanded that the pilot, Jürgen Schumann, to, fa- to fly to Larnaca in Cyprus, but he was told that they had insufficient fuel and would have to land in Rome first. By the way, the three t- other terrorists were Suhailia Sayer, 22, a female from Palestine, and two Lebanese, were Bill Harb, 23 male, and Hind Alama, 22 female. So they changed course and landed in Rome for refuelling. The terrorists demanded the release of 10 Red Army Faction, or RAF, terrorists detained at the JVA Stuttgart Stamheim prison, plus two Palestinian compatriots held in Turkey, and they wanted... 15 million us dollars so as you can can imagine the west german and italian governments were in consultation as to what to do now don't forget germany was split in two back in 1977 east and west germany anyway the germans wanted the italians to shoot out the tires so the plane couldn't leave the italians had a better idea they could get rid of the problem altogether if they refueled the plane and let it fly to another country. <laughs> They're good, aren't they? So it was refueled and it took off around 5.45 p.m. to Larnaca in Cyprus. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Larnaca in Cyprus. Anyway, it flew off without clearance from Rome traffic control. But as you could imagine, there wouldn't have been much traffic going in or out of Rome at the time to worry about. It was probably on lockdown. So they landed in Lanarca, Cyprus at uh, 8.28 p.m. So now we're right over to the eastern side of the Mediterranean. About, after about an hour, a local PLO or Palestinian Liberation Organization representative He arrived at the airport and over the radio tried to persuade Mahmud to release the hostages. Mahmoud expected a bit more solidarity than that, got the shits and started going into a rage at the PLO guy. Then eventually the PLO guy had had enough and went home. Here's all this shit going down and this guy just wants to go home. I mean, I couldn't help but stay and watch what happened at least. Anyway, let's go on. The aircraft was then refuelled and Schumann, the pilot, asked flight control for routing to Beirut. He was told the Beirut airport was blocked and closed to them and Mahmoud told Schumann that they would go to Damascus instead. After also being denied landing permission in Damascus, Baghdad and Kuwait they headed for Bahrain. Schumann was told by a passing Qantas airliner that Bahrain airport was closed. He radioed flight control and told them they had insufficient fuel to go elsewhere and despite being told again that the airport was closed he was suddenly given an automatic landing frequency by the flight controller. They finally landed in Bahrain at 1.52 the following morning. On landing, the plane was surrounded by soldiers and Mahmoud told them they had five minutes to piss off or he would shoot the co-pilot. They did withdraw and the plane was refuelled. They then took off for Dubai. So, how would you feel at this stage? you expect to be on a short 11am flight from Mallorca to Frankfurt, but instead you you have first some crazy dude burst into the cockpit and on a 737 there's a pretty good chance everyone saw what happened. You then have the plane turn and land in Rome, then take off and land in Cyprus, and from there you're now in the Persian Gulf in Bahrain. It's now in the early morning of the next day. As you can imagine, the 80-odd passengers were probably not allowed to go to the Dunny, and any food or drinks that were stocked before the flight were probably already gone. Already gone. That's Nina's podcast. Check it out. But that's not, not your last stop. You now take off for Dubai, which is further southeast along the Persian Gulf. But they say, nah, fuck off, you're not landing here. The pilots do a flyover at the airport to see that the runways are blocked by fire engines and trucks. The pilot told the control uh, control tower that they were running out of fuel and they were going to land anyway and they did another low pass to see that the trucks had started to move off the runway. And at 5.40 a.m., Vita, the co pilot, landed the plane. This is now October 14. Here, the terrorists asked Dubai Airport to supply water, food, medicine, newspapers, and to take away the rubbish. While on the tarmac, Captain Schumann was able to communicate the number of hijackers and their gender. Once Mahmud realised the captain had done this, he threatened to kill him. Well, he didn't, and the aircraft stayed on the tarmac all day and night, waiting to be refuelled. Finally, after threatening to start shooting hostages, the Dubai authorities relented and refuelled the plane. But they ended up on the tarmac here until 12.20am on the 17th of October. So that's around 70 hours they were at Dubai. During this time, the Germans got the Dubai government to agree to let them bring in the elite German anti-terrorist squad, GSG-9. They actually did 44 hours of a dry run training to storm the aircraft on an adjacent airstrip but before they could be deployed to storm the plane, it had taken off towards Salalah in Oman. Landing permission was again denied here, so they flew onto Aden in Yemen. Here the lovely people of Yemen also blocked the runway with trucks and denied landing. However, the pilots had run out of options and they had to make an emergency landing on a sand strip parallel to the normal runways. I mean, fuck that would be scary. Remember, these planes didn't have anywhere near the electronics than they do today, so this landing would have been crazy. So they land, and the Aden local authorities told them to piss off and fly somewhere else. The pilots were worried that the landing on the soft ground may have damaged the aircraft and so Mahmud let Captain Schumann go outside and have a look around at the landing gear and engines for any sign of damage. Schumann checked the plane, but didn't come back on board straight away despite multiple requests from Mahmoud. Marmod even threatened to blow up the plane. It's unclear what happened, but it's thought Schumann used this time to plead to the Yemen authorities to give in to the terrorist demands. When Schumann did get back on the plane, Mahmoud went berserk and made him kneel down on the floor. He then shot him in the head without letting him explain his absence. How would you be? Now on board for nearly four days on a little 737 and you just witnessed the pilot being shot in the head. Maybe after four days, you go into some sort of trance or something. I mean, I really don't know. But if you could be terrified for that amount of time, is that even possible? Anyway, by 6 a.m. on the 17th, the plane is refuelled and Vita, the co-pilot, gently brings the aircraft round and takes off towards the Somali capital of Mogadishu. At around 6.22am local time, Vita made a perfect and unannounced landing in Mogadishu. Impressed by the superhuman accomplishment, Marmad told Vita he was free to leave as there was no plans to fly anywhere else. Vita, however, decided to stay on board with the passengers and crew. What a legend. Now, we're now approaching 90 hours from the initial takeoff from Mallorca. Captain Schumann's body was thrown out of the plane and onto the tarmac. Another ultimatum was set for the release of the Red Army Faction Prisoners to be released by 4pm local time or they were going to blow up the plane. The hijackers then poured all the duty-free spirits over the passengers in preparation for the destruction of the aircraft. The hijackers were then told that the West German government had agreed to release the prisoners, but their transfer to Mogadishu would take several more hours and so the deadline was extended to 2.30am the next morning. Now, this is where it really gets interesting. Of course, the Germans were bullshitting the terrorists about letting the Red Army Faction prisoners go. Instead, they were planning to get their 30-man team of GSG-9 commando mofos flown in to rescue the passengers and crew. Now, the more I get into this, the more fascinating it's become. I think I'll do another episode on some of the terrorism in the 70s down the track. So the team lands with no lights on at about 8pm at Mogadishu so as not to alert the terrorists. It takes about 4 hours to unload all their stuff and they prepare to put what they call Operation Foyadzalba, and that means fire magic into effect they decide to come in from the rear of the aircraft in its blind spot in six teams, using black painted aluminium ladders to get access to the aircraft through escape hatches located under the fuselage and via the doors over the wings. While this is going on, the Germans are feeding Mahmud a load of bullshit about the progress of the released Red Army Faction Prisoners. Just after 2 a.m., Mahmud was told that the plane carrying the prisoners had just left Cairo after refueling, and he was asked to provide the conditions of the the conditions of the hostage exchange over the radio. Just before the rescue, Somali soldiers lit a fire sixty five meters in front of the plane to distract Mahmud two of the other three terrorists rushed forward into the cockpit to see what the fuck was going on, and so now they were pretty much isolated from the rest of the passengers and crew. At 2.07 local time, the GSG-9 commandos silently climbed up the blackened aluminium ladders and opened the emergency doors. One group opened the forward door, and two other groups stormed the aircraft by using ladders to climb up onto the wings and opened both emergency doors at the same time. Shouting in German for the passengers and crew to hit the floor, the commando shot and killed two of the terrorists, Wabil Hab and Hind Alameh, and wounded Mahmoud and Suhailia Salya. Mahmoud died of his injuries hours later. One GSG-9 commando was wounded by return fire from the terrorists. Three passengers and a flight attendant were slightly wounded in the crossfire. An American passenger aboard the plane described the rescue. I saw the door open and a man appears. His face was painted black and he starts shouting in German, We are here to rescue you! Get down! and they started shooting the emergency escape chutes were deployed and passengers and crew were ordered to quickly evacuate the aircraft at 2:12 local time just 5 minutes after the assault had commenced the commando's radioed boom faka boom fuck-a-lunga. no no they didn't i just made that bit up they they shouted frulinzate which meant springtime so, frulingzeit, frulingzeit, which was the code word for the successful completion of the operation. A few moments later, a radio signal was sent to Chancellor Schmidt in Bonn. Four opponents down, hostages free, four hostages slightly wounded, one commando slightly wounded. The rescuers escorted all 86 passengers to safety. And a few hours later, they were all flown to Cologne Bonn Airport, where they landed in the early afternoon of Tuesday, the 18th of October. And they were given a hero's welcome. How's that? After five days on a 737, probably thinking you're going to die at any time, being flown all over the place, and then all of a sudden, these dudes burst onto the plane shouting, boom, fucker, longer!" And a few minutes later, you're on the tarmac rescue. It's a shame Mahmoud killed Captain Schumann. I mean, the captain was probably only trying to save everyone, including the terrorists. After this, the West German government let the world know that it would never, ever again negotiate with terrorists. The 737 ended up flying for eight more years with Lufthansa and ended up in Brazil, but the company that bought it went broke. Now, just this year, the German government paid the Fortaleza Airport Administration in Brazil €20,000 to buy back the aircraft. Now, they sent a film crew and a bunch of planes and shipping containers and what the planes included an Antonov An-124 Ruslan plus an Illusion IL-76 aircraft. Now, you know, those those are those huge planes that are used to carry really big stuff. Now, they flew those into Brazil to pick up the fuselage and wings of the 737 so they can bring it back to Germany to reassemble and put in the Dornier Museum frederick's Schaffen. now it'll probably move from there but basically they bought it back to put it all back together restore it how it was back in 1977 so there you go a mixed bag tonight and let me know if you would like some other historical events in further special editions in fact, I reckon the hijacking could have been an actual episode in its own right as I really had to cut it down to fit it into the show. In fact, I've always been interested in terrorism during the 70s and 80s in Europe. The Red Army Faction, as it was mentioned tonight, was also known as the Barter mine Gang. Now, on a side note, there is such a thing as the barnett Minoff phenomenon. This is where you happen upon some obscure piece of information. Maybe it's an unfamiliar word or name or something, but soon afterwards, you hear it again and again and again. I'm sure this has happened to you. Now, let me know in on Facebook if you've ever experienced that. Now, it's also called Frequency Illusion. Say, maybe you buy a white Ford Mustang and then all of a sudden you notice notice white Ford Mustangs everywhere. Now, why is it called the Barter-Meinhof phenomenon? Look, it's not 100% known who coined the term first, but what it means is the Barter-Meinhof gang, they came out of Germany in the 70s. Now, they became quite prolific with terrorism. So, out of nowhere... There's this term, Barna-Meinhof, and it pops up everywhere, all over the place. So that's what why they sort of called this phenomena, this frequency illusion, the Barna-Meinhof phenomenon. Okay, so that's all for the trivia for tonight. So, True Crime Islanders, we come to the end of another show. It's Patreon time, and thank you very much to the new Patreon supporters and existing Patreon supporters. I'd like to thank Justin R., Amanda B., Leslie Seb, and Llamabug. Thank you all so very much. If you want to become a patron of True Crime Island, go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island, where you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. Why? Because True Crime Island is commercial free and you get an episode every week. But if you want to donate on a one-off basis, you can always use the PayPal account, which is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. If you'd like to buy some merch, there's a link on the webpage, truecrimeisland.com, where you can wear your support with t-shirts or hoodies, but you can also get the mug of rage. If you want to purchase a beer cooler or koozie, email me of course on cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can sort you out. All koozie sales come with True Crime Island stickers as a bonus. But you don't have to pay anything to get commercial free weekly episodes and support the island. You can support the island by telling a friend or family member or whoever. Maybe they're new to the wide world of podcasts, so spread the word and let them know where to get it. Join the Facebook Close group for more info and discussion or to just suggest an episode or post a news item. Halloween's next week. I will be doing a special show. If you have a creepy story, email it to me on, again, cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I will read it out. I am doing bits for other shows such as The Minds of Madness, The Trail Went Cold and Murder Under the Midnight Sun, so look for those great podcasts. So tonight I have two promos for podcasts you should check out, Encrypted and Corpus Delecti. So Islanders, it's Cambo signing off and as always, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Hello, my darlings. I'm Sammy, the host of Encrypted. Every two weeks, I will bring you stories of mystery, true crime, and creepy. You can find me on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a story? I would love to hear it. You can go to the Encrypted Podcast discussion group on Facebook. On Twitter, you can find us at Encrypted Pod, Or you can go to accproductions.org slash encrypted. Don't forget to lock your doors and hold tight to your flashlight. Hey y'all, Jen and Lindsay here from the Corpus Delicti podcast, here to tell you to check out our show. If true crime's your thing, it's ours too. Just a little dash of lightheartedness and a hint of Southern Charm. Serial killers, controversial cases, historical hallmarks, we've got it all. So just join us every Tuesday on iTunes, Podbean, or many other podcast apps as we dive into compelling cases and crack them open for you. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. That's C-O-R-P-U-S-D-E-L-I-C-T-I. See you Tuesday!